welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we're here uh, bringing you choices and knowledge of those choices every, uh, what is it now? Every Sunday from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., I should say. It'd be great to do 12 hours, but I think I would get hoarse after the 10th hour. Uh, we're also here on Mondays at 1 a.m., Wednesdays at 9 a.m., and then we have Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m., and we certainly hope that you'll tune into any one or all of those nine with nine different guests, nine different subjects and conversations. And we stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. We uh, also uh, want to let you know that uh, we have podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. We're also on YouTube where you can listen to uh, and watch these interviews at uh, YouTube, uh, the channel, Tell Me Your Story, Richard Dugan. We hope you will. And uh, then, of course, we ask that if you can support the work we're doing financially, we would be so gratefully appreciative. If you can, PayPal, it's there for your security as well as ours. And uh, put in the, the email address of richard at richarddugan.com. That's richard at richarddugan.com. And uh, let's see. Oh, one other thing. Would you take some time to spend it with yourself, so to speak, going within, listening to that still small voice and just being quiet? Now, as of this conversation, uh, I actually went to uh, the beach uh, in spite of the clouds, in spite of uh, the high surf, the high tide. I nearly uh, got hit by a wave and I was standing way, way back on the rocks because uh, it was really coming in, but I was really enjoying uh, the opportunity of just being quiet and uh, not uh, not doing much of anything. But we're going to be doing something here with a conversation with our very special guest. She's the author of Everything is a Little Broken. Uh, Rebecca Sugar is my guest, and uh, uh, the, this particular work is being released on the 27th of February, 2024. Uh, 2024 is the correct year. She's an acclaimed journalist and author. Uh, more than uh, just a compassionate look at life in, a middle, in the Middle Ages, it's a uh, heartfelt story inspired by beloved members of, the Sugar's, of Sugar's own family, our guest's own family. Uh, and we're going to find out more about that. I want to welcome you to our program. Thank you for being with us here on the program. Thank you for having me. Very jealous about your beach story. I live in New York and it's about 30 <laughs> degrees. So that one well, hit me. Well, I'll tell you that uh, 30 degrees, uh, I enjoy the cold weather. I'm originally a Phoenix native. Um, mm. And I, I have this wonderful little joke. I call it wonderful little joke. I was born legally blind. I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. And you know what that makes me, right? A Phoenician right. blind. <laughs> okay, enough of the uh, humor. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about your latest book that, that's coming out on the 27th. Um, and it's called Everything is a Little A Little Broken. Um, let's talk about uh, the uh, this particular work. According to this uh, information that I have, uh, aging is hard, but watching those you love uh, get older uh, isn't uh, much easier. Now, I can attest to both of those statements. It's on the back cover of your book because uh, my father, who just passed away almost a year ago, March 1st of last year, my mother is 89 still going strong, has a strong voice and is still out doing things. And she has her, her three remaining daughters. Uh, her eldest daughter passed two years ago uh, in March of 2021 and uh, or 2022, I should say, uh, but she's doing great. Uh, and I was in, I was reassured by each one of their husbands, both um, the eldest, as well as my three other remaining sisters, husbands are my brothers-in-law that they would be around to take care of mom and so forth uh and i call her from time to say how you doing mom and she'll tell me and she's again as i said uh, she's still got that strong voice 
And that to me is a good indication that she is doing well. How did this story come about? And especially in light of this whole issue of the fact that in this world, we're all, we're all getting older and we're all heading for that departure lounge, if you will. You know what I mean? Talk to us about how this all started I for did, you. Arthur. Yeah, well, uh, we are all getting older um, and I'm getting older. And so I'm in that place in my life. I'm 53 years old where, uh, you know, I'll meet my girlfriends for lunch or dinner and we inevitably talk about our parents. Uh, our parents are in their 80s and sometimes 90s. And um, when we're when you're lucky, they're, you know, doing well enough. And when you're not so lucky, you sort of recount the list of ailments and problems and challenges, and we're all going through it. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't hard to relate to the story. It's something that all of us talk about that I talk about all the time. In my particular case, my uh, father is 83, my mother is 79. My mother happens to be in great health and she better stay that way because I can't take two parents in this condition. <laughs> uh, but he had a uh, spinal, unfortunately, it was just a he had a series of challenges and problems that resulted from the actual surgery um, and the recovery. And, you know, over time, uh, things compound. And when in your 80s, um, a lot of things happen to your body anyway. So the sort of um, accumulation of all of his issues together joined with older age um, have put him in a place where he's physically um, what we like to call a wreck. <laughs> and uh, mentally, thank God he's sharp as attack, but uh, his body is not doing that well. And it's it's really limited his mobility and all sorts of other things. And so I was sitting there during COVID. Um, I'm a writer anyway. I write usually for publications. And so I was just writing because what else are you going to do during COVID? And, and um, before I knew it, um, I had sort of started to write this story um, sort of semi-autobiographical. And I think because I didn't want to write an autobiography and because it fell too close to home, I sort of turned it into a fiction novel. Although the two main characters, Mira Kane and her father, uh, Matt Frank, are really very similar to myself and to my father. Now, I'm curious as to why you made it fiction when sometimes telling the real story of what really goes on uh, can actually be even more profound, but yet this is still a very poignant story that that, that yeah. literally it is going to touch you. I don't care how old you are. It's still going to touch you. Yeah, I think I could have made it um, an autobiography. It was a choice. I, I think I chose fiction, um, A, because it was a little too hard to be that direct, um, but maybe more so because um, there were things about the story that I wanted to correct <laughs> or um, change or make um, happier or make sadder. Um, you know, it was a chance fictionalizing it to to uh, uh, deal with some of the issues that I was dealing with in my imagination in a way that I would have liked to have done or wish I could have done if things had been different. So... I think it just helped me to uh, work through what was really going on more actually by fictionalizing it. Mm. And, and again, as I, as we've kind of stated at the front end, um, everybody is, is going to be facing this uh, situation of not just parents, siblings, as I said, uh, yeah. I've, I've lost my father and my eldest sister. And I think that my father went following my eldest sister's passing due to cancer uh, because, well, first of all, it was his firstborn. They were very mm -hmm. close. And uh, what's real interesting to me uh, and actually extremely poignant is that literally days before her, I like to use a lot of euphemistic words, the days before her departure, <laughs> Mm -hmm. She and her husband of 40 years. I couldn't believe it was 40. Wow. Um, they renewed their wedding vows on that Sunday before. And she passed, oh, wow. I believe it was on a Tuesday. And my, uh, my 
now my eldest sister, Cecilia, has said that, um, yeah, after the ceremony, the two of them, they held each other in an embrace for the longest time. And I think it was because they both were very much aware. And it's like, I wish I had been able to have been there for the renewal of my sister's vows with her husband, who is, and I have to tell you that I consider all four of my brothers-in-law as brothers. They're not, they're not separate from the family. Uh, And then my eldest sister, my present, uh, my current eldest sister's uh, husband, um, he's taking care of her because she's dealing with her own medical issues as she's in her, uh, I think, uh, uh, mid sixties as well. I'm 63 as of this conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and I just sit here and I go, I know I'm going to get that call. I know. I, and of course, when I did get the call, I thought it was about my father. This was two years ago. And yeah. of course it was about my eldest sister. And of course my father was diagnosed the weekend before his departure with with onset of Parkinson's and early onset of dementia. Uh, but I was really, lucky. yeah, go ahead, please go ahead. Hard. No, I mean, you bring up so many things that I want, want to talk about. This is why I loved writing the book, because it brings up so many of these conversations that all of us are having. Just just a small thing, but maybe not so small when you talked about waiting for the phone to ring. Um, the main character in my book, Mira, walks around with her phone with her everywhere and is always on the table next to her uh, because she's always waiting for her mother to call and say her father's dead. Mm. And it's a terrible thought. I hate to even use the D word, but that is the recurring sort of fear. Um, you're always waiting for that moment and um, you're never prepared for it. And there's no great way to prepare for it, but you don't want to not be there when the phone rings. So I just, I relate to that when you said that about the phone. I think that there are a lot of people, often when I put my phone on the table at a lunch or a dinner, people think it's because of my kids because I'm waiting to see news about them. And it's, it, my kids are 17, I have twins. Um, and uh, it's usually actually not them that I'm thinking about when I'm putting the phone there. It's usually my father. Yeah. Uh, but also this idea of, you know, your your that story that you just told about the embrace and um knowing that someone is going to go. There's another character in the book, May, who's an older woman, even older than her father, uh, who is dying mm. and to, you know, give it away. She eventually does die in the book, but it's not giving it away. And um, there is a lot in there about that kind of preparation, that kind of saying goodbye. Um, you know, Mira's father in the book is not dying but he's he's in decline and everybody knows that decline is not always a straight line, but it always heads in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of terrible long, um, you know, the long view of what's gonna happen. But at the same time, she has a woman in her life she's very close to who was her nanny and also her father's nanny who had been in the family for 70 years. And she is clearly dying. And so there's this immediate sense of how do you handle the short goodbye, not the long goodbye. Mm. What do you do? How do you prepare? How do you care for that person? What are the things that you want to say to them? How do you interact with them in those moments? So that's a whole other piece of this book too. Um, but I want to say before we say anything else that I I wrote this book with humor. Mm-hmm. Um, A, because that's how I deal with what happens with my father. Uh, we, we laugh about some of the most horrible things that happened to him um, because the human condition is ridiculous in so many ways. We're all frail. We're all fragile. <laughs> right. And um, even when your father is just fallen and on the floor and humiliated himself, it's absolutely awful. Uh, but there is a joke in there and the joke revives the spirit. It reminds you that you're human Um, that he's not just a patient or some old person. And so we use that a lot and I use it all throughout the book and, um, and also faith Um, in the book, the family is Jewish. The woman may that she's very close to is a Pentecostal Christian woman. Um, There's a lot of Christianity and Judaism interwoven into it as well. um, Because how could there not be faith when you're having these conversations, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Now, you and your particular philosophy, uh, uh, Christian, Jewish, what, what, where do you hail from philosophically? I'm Jewish. Um, and I am 
somebody who's still, because I had a May in my life, that's who that character is modeled after. I, um, I love gospel music. I go to a Pentecostal church every once in a while on a Sunday just to hear it and to reconnect with her. Um, I'm a, I'm somebody who has um, a deep sense of faith, uh, but also somebody who struggles with faith. I think like most thinking people do, uh, faith is a fight. And in moments like this, it's a real fight. And so you lean on, uh, you know, the, the things you've learned and the way you've been raised and the beliefs that you have. And so I kind of gather them from wherever I can get them. Any wisdom is wisdom for me. I, uh, my favorite interviews, uh, and, and this interview, notwithstanding, uh, cause I love, I love talking about my father, uh, who did not think he really had much of an influence on the lives of his children, six of them. Mm -hmm. And I tried to, while he was alive, impart to him, and his memorial was probably, uh, and this was unscripted, by the way, uh, it was probably best epitomized by the phrase, Dad, we would not be the people we are if it hadn't been for you. Not just because, uh, you know, he and my mother chose to have a big family, which they had and so forth, but because he was there. He, he wasn't an absentee father in any way. And um, so, uh, you know, that was really the theme of, of his memorial which I basically stated in my in my remarks that, Dad, I wouldn't be the man I am if it weren't for you. Not just because yeah. the cells from your body and the cells from my mom's body got together and and the odds are astronomical that I I came out, you know, in that respect. And then the other five. Um, yeah. But it was it was there was a certain sadness in his voice when he talked about that, because he would always give all the credit to mom. Um, hmm. and, it, and again, there has to be an acceptance on the part of parents, in my opinion, in my opinion, uh, that yeah. um, they had an influence on us. They made us who we are, not just from the beginning, but throughout our upbringing. Uh, what about that yeah. in, in terms of uh, sharing that aspect yeah. of the story, even though this is fiction, uh, yes. it sort of mirrors real life. Uh, did your, do your parents feel that they did all that they could, that they had an influence, that they had an impact, that they gave you everything that they could. And, and now it's up to you. Yeah, I think um, two things come up when you say that, right? One is just for me personally, I as I was writing this book and writing the dialogue between Mira and her father, um, you know, I just, it was obvious how much of the dialogue was, in it, how much of my own voice was a reflection of my father and everything that he's been in my life and taught me and modeled for me. Um, it couldn't have been more clear that he's had an impact. We're very close as well. And so I could just hear him in my voice uh, without even trying. Uh, but I also added this character in the book. This is a fictional character in a sense. It's, it's an amalgam of different people. Uh, there's a brother. The main character, Mira, has a brother in the book, a younger brother, who's sort of estranged from the family. And he... And his father in particular buttheads, as a lot of sons and fathers do. Yeah. And the father, Matt, in the book struggles because he knows he's sort of in the last years of his life and worries about exactly what you just said. Have I made an impact on this child? Will my son remember me? Will he know me? Will he say the traditional, uh, we call it the Kaddish prayer, the Jewish prayer that you say for the dead um, after they're gone, you know, what have I left behind? What part of my faith, my ideology, my philosophy, my spirit, am I leaving to this child who barely talks to me, lives across the country and doesn't come to see me that often? And I think, you know, what was interesting also is I gave the manuscript to very few people um, before I found a publisher because I thought if I just gave it to my friends to read, they would just say, oh, it's great. You know, and I didn't want that. I wanted people who didn't know me well to read it. And I gave it to five different women 
all of whom are a little bit older than I am and don't know me very well. And that brother character is the character that they actually, all of them responded to the most. Um, because I think in every family, there's somebody that just feels like they're a little distant, like maybe you haven't reached them or you worry about the connection. And as people get older, obviously they worry about what they leave behind. And, and so I think that that character is going to resonate for a lot of people. Interesting, because my brother and I, at my in my 33rd year, we were attending a family reunion. Now, again, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, my parents' relatives um, lived primarily uh, in Coolidge and between Coolidge and Florence, Arizona. So we were at the Elks Lodge having this family reunion, and my brother and I decided to take a walk out in the desert that particular day. And we both acknowledged that our perceptions of our connection in the family was that we were both the black sheep of the family. Now, we had, we had never acknowledged this to each other, but we yeah. both felt that way. Mm -hmm. And when we finally recognized that we both felt that way, we both kind of let that, I think we both let that go. We said, Oh, I, I I guess I'm not the black sheep of the family because I am not alone in in how I feel about my connection to the family. And it yeah. was it, and it was really kind of strange in one sense uh, when you think about it. Oh, my gosh, because uh, there was a time when I thought I was adopted. That was short lived. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Uh, cause I'm, I'm probably one of the loudest voice, boisterous, vociferous, uh, individuals I have even noticed in, in recent conversations with my mother, I get the sense that she's getting a little worn out, a little tired here in this conversation we're having. Yeah. So I might want to kind of wrap it up and call it quits. Yeah. I'm very much aware of that. Um, you ever felt that way in your own family? Like I'm the black sheep? Like you're the black sheep. Maybe you were adopted, you know, you were picked <laughs> up off the side of the road uh, when you were very young. Uh, when I was very young, my older brother, who never forgave my parents for having a second child, used to try to convince me, of course, that I was picked <laughs> up off the side of the road and I was going to be returned there very quickly. He, I don't know. I think he got over it eventually, but... Mm. Um, and I have a younger brother, too. Um, no, I don't know if I, I think what happens is you feel like the black sheep vis-a-vis -vis maybe one of your parents. Mm -hmm. um, or at least that's, I think I probably might have felt that with my mother more. I was always very close to my father. Um, I think I probably felt like, you know, a little bit of a disconnect with my mother when I was a teenager and in my 20s, although that sounds um, not at all unique to me. Uh, <laughs> a lot of young girls feel that way. Um I don't think I got the black sheep feeling, um, but you, you know, I think the more I talk to friends and family, there is always somebody who seems to be that person in the family. And I wonder always if it, they really are that person or if they get tagged that way and then they sort of live up to their label. Yeah. Um, but in, you know, in this story, I, I think I also tried not to, and everything is a little broken. I tried to, not give answers to a lot of these questions because what I also find, I wonder if you feel this way, but you know, most things don't get really truly resolved. You don't always get the answer, especially to these deep emotional questions about who you are and who your parents were. You you get a lot of information, you integrate it, you try to do your best with it. Sometimes you have to just let go of yeah. things that you don't understand. There's a lot you don't understand in the world. And um, so Daniel, the brother character in this story, um, you know, there's no tying it up with a bow in the end. There's no big running back to the family and giving him a hug and everybody's happy again. Mm. And he understands his responsibilities. Um, he's on his own journey. He's got to figure it out. The, what Mira has to do, the main character, is, is figure out how to live with that. Just like she has to figure out how to live with the fact that her father is not going to be here much longer and that May is dying. You don't get to change a lot. You just have to figure out how to how to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I said earlier, one of some of my favorite interviews are with uh, rabbis 
I first of all, mm -hmm. I understand intellectually uh, about their study and what they have mm -hmm. to go through to get there uh, yeah. to become a rabbi. And in the conversations I've had, both on a compassionate uh, and impassioned level, but also that intellectual, do you know the context under which this law was created kind of stuff? Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I love that. Now, you know, if, if I hadn't been born and raised Catholic, um, mm -hmm. I probably would have uh, leaned more towards Judaism because there's something about ritual, tradition, and ceremony that draws me in. It's part of the reason I, I have loved Catholicism. Uh, you know, it's not just the candles and the incense, but it's the diversity yeah. of rituals and so forth. I mean, I was fortunate with my first wife uh, to be drawn into um, the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church, the Byzantine Rite that, that mm -hmm. started in Constantinople, um, mm -hmm. what is now Constantinople. And I, I loved it. I even ha still have a hardcover copy of the liturgy, which is the same mm -hmm. today as it was back in 1983 when we were married in the Byzantine church that she grew up in, St. Stephen's in Phoenix. There, I don't know, there's something about it. And so I've wanted to learn more about uh, the, 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 the ceremonies, if you will, the traditions of Judaism. Uh, I know yes. that, what is it, every, what is it, Friday evening is when yes. the Sabbath begins at sunset? Yes. And right. that there are certain things you don't touch. I think it's during that period, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. I used to get, I used to make a big deal about uh, Hanukkah until I was corrected. Yeah. It says, well, we appreciate the fact that you think it's a big deal, but it's not. It's not one of the high <laughs> holy days. <laughs> no, it's not. That's true. Uh, yeah, there's a scene in my book about a Friday night dinner. We we have those every Friday night in my family and always have. Um, Friday night sundown till Saturday night sundown is the Jewish Sabbath. And so on Friday nights, traditionally, you have a big meal together with family and friends. And um, there's a scene in my book about that. And it's, you know, they're always sort of like semi Woody Allen-esque, these, <laughs> these Friday night dinners, because, you know, be, well, I think because of the reason that you sort of alluded to that, you know, you, there are certain things you don't touch and things you don't do. We, you don't use electronics. You don't watch TV. Nobody's going out to a party or getting in the car and driving somewhere. So Friday nights are just like like family meals used to be mm -hmm. before, you know, everybody had a phone in their hand. No one has anywhere to go. Everyone's just sitting there and you're talking to each other. Um, so all the funniest things happen and, and family dynamics happen at the table. Yeah. So I have a, a really important scene in the book has to happens around a Friday night dinner table. And yeah, Judaism um, features in this book because it's the lens through which I look at a lot of things. I mean, one of my um, rabbis, a man that I used to study with all the time, was a brilliant guy named Rabbi Robert Hurt. Um, I sort of quote him in the book, um, not him, but through a, a character. It was this beautiful line that he once said to me when I was once probably complaining unnecessarily about what my father was going through and what happens to people when they get older and how cruel it can be and how awful it is to watch and, you know, doing what everybody does, saying, well, how could God let this happen? And, you know, just whatever rant I was on. And um, he said to me, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, you know, Rebecca in Judaism, um, we focus less on the quality of life than the sanctity of life. Mm. And so I use that in the book. It's a beautiful way to think about it. It doesn't really help so much the poor person lying in the bed. And in my book's case, May is lying there withering away um, and doesn't have much of a life le left. And Mira is sort of wondering, what is this? This is life. And so she reflects back and remembers that saying, um, so the poor, you know, the poor person in the bed withering away may not find a lot of comfort in that. But for those of us watching our parents and loved ones sort of dying, fading away, um, declining, it helps to remember that there's sanctity in life, not just the quality that we should be measuring. We're talking with Rebecca Sugar, her her um, a book, a fiction uh, that I think you should get a copy of because it will, I think, uh, enlighten you as to the process that, again, every human being is going to go through 
uh, if it's not uh, with themselves, but it would also be with family around or even friends for that matter. Everything is a little broken. And um, it's interesting, you know, you talk about this in terms of friends uh, and maybe maybe uh, family is gone. And now all you have are your friends. I, I lost uh, last year along with my father. Uh, and I, I say that euphemistically because he's not lost. Uh, I know where he is. He's everywhere now, which is one of the perspectives that I take. My best friend of 53 years, uh, we grew up together. I went through grade school, high school, and college. One of the funniest stories that I remember, among others, and that's one of the beautiful things is I have not, even though he hasn't been gone quite a year, I have not cried, shed tears over his passing because every time I think about him, I laugh because of how much fun we had. And the, the one story in college, we went to junior college together. I waited six months after high school graduation before deciding to go to junior college. And uh, he worked, uh, he got a job uh, in the local bookstore because he worked in the bookstore at the high school we went to. And uh, he signed up just as I did for all the classes that we signed up for. And um, the first semester we were together, he didn't like one particular class, so he dropped it. And we continued on through the semester. Second semester, we were together, signed up for the classes together. And then he dropped a class. Third semester, we're going through. And he dropped a class. And um, that afternoon at lunchtime when we were chatting, he says, yeah, I know I dropped that class. And then I decided uh, I'm going to drop this class. And he says, before I knew it, I had uh, dropped all of my classes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, seriously, you, I, I, you like dropping <laughs> classes so much, you just dropped them all. And um, I was just, it was like, okay. Uh, we went on a trip to Kansas one year, uh, one summer. Uh, we drove across country from Phoenix through New Mexico. I got to tell you, driving through New Mexico on I-40 is one of the most frustrating drives that I have ever been on because mm -hmm. You're, you're going over these hills. You go up and then down and then up and then down. And just when you think, oh, we're just at the top of the hill and we're almost there. And then there's another hill. And then there's another hill. And then and it's just like, seriously, you know, let's bring this to an end. Could we get to Texas, please? Um, so we, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't cry because of the relationship I had with him. He came out to me in our late teens, early twenties, mm. as if to try to test our friendship. And I basically, I responded by saying, well, what do you want me to do with that? You're still my best yeah. friend. I don't care who you love. Right. I even asked right. him, I says, did you ever consider me as a partner? He says, no, you know, which, which hurt for a little while. Yeah, that's insulting, <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> it was another one of those funny moments. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to have friends like that, that you've known for a long time that you can't really share some of these stories with them because it was one of those phrases you you hear it often you had to be there you had to be there yeah of course of course and you know funny about memory there's um in in judaism when someone dies we say may their memory be for a blessing and mira the character in my book struggles with that after may dies you know what does that mean and do memories really sustain you when someone you love is gone? I mean, it's nice to have the memories, but you want the person there and it doesn't feel the same. And what does that mean? Yeah. And um, that's a, that's another sort of theme in this book is sort of how you take those memories of people and make them a blessing in your life and in the lives of people around you. Um, it's not so obvious how to do that or how you'll do it when it happens to you. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have accumulated, as you have with your friend, these sort of wonderful, I can see on your face, you lit up when you talked about him, <laughs> right? It's That's the blessing itself. It's, and when you share that with other people, it just sort of lights them up. And um, yeah, I think that's a really important part of this story too, is sort of, um, it, it's not about that person's decline. It's about what changes in you uh, as a result of it and how you lead your life afterwards, because you're going to have to lead your life after there's an after there's yeah. always an after. 
um, can't avoid it. <laughs> you know, it's it's also true too that uh, after he came out to me, uh, and I don't know if it was because of this, just so that he would know that how much I cared about him uh, as a friend. I would end conversations in person or on the phone. Uh, if it was in person, we were we would be hugging goodbye. Uh, the last conversation I had with him was uh, when I was at the airport uh, following my, uh, I, I can't remember if it was before or after my sister's memorial, but anyway, we're having lunch there and we hugged and I told him I loved him. And I told him on the, I would tell him on the phone or I would tell him in texts. I haven't deleted his uh, uh, number from my phone uh, nor have I deleted the numbers of the of others who have passed. I mean, 2022 was a year of losses because uh, uh, lost a dear friend who was 94 who lived across the street from my present wife and I back in Phoenix. Uh, the next month, February of uh, of of 2022, lost a, a dear friend who was one of the programmers on the station that I am still working for after 17, almost 18 years. Um, yeah. And then, of course, uh, March, uh, my sister and so on and so forth. And I I just find and I, I don't know if it's I'd like to think it's more of a psychological or spiritual level that I have accepted the reality of the process of this life that we all lead. I mean, what was it mm -hmm. you said? You said that. uh uh, the human life is kind of, is kind of ridiculous. Was that the word you used? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't I, disagree with you. Yeah. There's an absurdity to the absurdity. human condition. That's it. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, I think of my father who was, is a brilliant man, an accomplished person. He was always a very proud, you know, he's tall. He was always handsome. He just sort of looked like that guy that, could do anything. He kind of did do anything. People would come to him for advice. He was so strong. Um, strong men can't get out of chairs sometimes when they're 83. It's their bodies don't work anymore. They, it's sort of ridiculous. Sometimes he'll, you know, he'll be sitting at the table. He sits on these two cushions now because he can't sit too low or it's hard for him. It's a strain on his back to get up. So he'll be sitting at the table with me and these two cushions under him and then he has to get up for something and he'll sometimes take him three tries I'm laughing only because it's not funny I wish he could just get up but mm -hmm. he has to rock back and forth like three times and get a little momentum and then finally swing himself up and hopefully on the third try if he gets <laughs> it he'll stand up and then he has to go over to his walker and you know drag himself around and I think, you know, it's sort of funny. We make jokes about maybe we should hire a crane to come and help him. And, <laughs> you know, all these silly things that we say. And, you know, we do the countdown, you know, three, two, one. And, you know, you do that because you want to sort of diffuse the moment somehow, take the stress and the strain out of the moment. And laughter is the only way we know how. And it, But we do it because it's so silly. Here was this wonderful, powerful man who helped people and did everything. Everyone leaned on him and now he can't get out of a chair. Well, yeah. you know, that's, that's life. That's people. That's the human being. We're all frail in our own ways. Sometimes emotionally, sometimes psychologically, sometimes physically. There's another character in my book, my best friend character in the book, who uh, Jenna, whose father, who she hasn't really been connected to most of her life, uh, has Alzheimer's and is sort of slipping away and mm -hmm. and the ridiculous things that he says to her. And, you know, it's ridiculous sometimes And in that pain. And the deepest moment of the pain is when like the funny can be found in a in a strange way. So, um, yeah, I think that combining the, the the laughter and the tears is so important um, because if you only do one or the other, you're just sort of missing an important part of the moment, it feels like to me. Yeah. I had an experience with a, a woman who had, um, I don't know if it was Alzheimer's or dementia, what have you. My wife and I moved here to Santa Barbara, my present wife and I, and it was her aunt. <clears throat> and she was in hospice care. <clears throat> and um, we went to visit her. And now she was still up and around, up and up and moving around and so forth. And um, she addressed me and <clears throat> asked me who I was. <clears throat> and I remember in an interview talking about this issue of Alzheimer's and, and dementia and so forth. You do not 
get the individual to come to you in your world. You go to theirs. So when she addressed me, um, she thought I was a doctor. The irony is that I got the nickname Dr. D, but I'm also a reverend, so it's uh -huh. Reverend Dr. D. So anyway, I said, yeah. She says, well, don't you have to go see patients? I says, you're my patient, and I'm here to see you. And I went with oh, her right. into her world. It was a lot less yeah. stressful than trying to convince her of who I was, which I didn't even try to do. Yes. Um, which also brings yeah. up this point. My father and I, even the day before his passing, I was lucky enough with my wife to get him on the phone, video phone conversation. He was lucid, <clears throat> very aware of, of what was happening. Told me how proud he was that he loved me and so forth. And the year before, when I was there for my sister's memorial, we had a little dust up where I tried to be cute. Now, my brother, my younger brother, he's always the one who's always flipping jokes, always making fun. I thought maybe I could do that. And of course, my brother and I had traveled to the memorial together and he did not return. And so my dad is wanting to know, where's Mike? Where's Mike? And I thought I'd be cute. I said, Dad, I'm sorry. We had to sell him in order to put gas in the car. He <laughs> did not find that funny at all. He says, look, when I want, when I ask a question, I want an answer. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, to be flippant. He decided to stay at Mary's and he's coming home a little later. And he walked yeah. off. So that night as I am making up the couch, my brother got the spare room because he got to my parents' house before I did. I'm making mm -hmm. up the couch for bed. And my dad walks into the room and he apologizes. And I turned around and I put my hands on his shoulders and I said, dad, you will always be my father and I love you and we are good. And we hugged. Right. And I can honestly right. say that my father and I left nothing unsaid. Hmm. I'm curious. And I kind of put this to the listeners as well and the viewers on YouTube. Is there someone who is important to you that is significant in your life? And yet, if they were to pass today, you would end up saying, I wish I had said. I'm wondering, do you feel that way with your parents in particular, but even siblings? Are there things that are still left unsaid that still need to be said? Or if they were to pass, you could say, I'm good because there was nothing left unsaid. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. I think um, I might have answered that, that regarding my father before writing this book is, you know, it was about 90% there. Part of writing this book and having him read it helped to kind of fill in the other 10%. Um, it got us talking about a lot of these things. Um, I think what's also interesting is that the the mother character in the book, who is not really exactly my mother in real life, but is there are a lot of themes about her that are the same. Um, writing that character actually uh, made me think of what you're saying more mm -hmm. because she's the one I've had the more, you know, difficult relationship with, let's say, uh, all my life. So there's obviously a lot of stuff left unsaid and, and it's time, right? And there, there's a lot of time left, you realize, when you start to get to these ages. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of that in there and writing about it help to kind of dig some of it up. I think also what I tried to do in this book is sort of in not giving answers, like firm answers about why things happen or what will be the conclusion or how, why people behave the way they behave. And so you sort of all understand everything at the end. I think um, I realized that when you're looking at your parents through a 53 year old lens and with an understanding of the limitations of time, you start to, you start to um, recognize that you don't understand as much as you thought you did about them, that you don't know them as well as you thought you did. Yeah. Their life, there are things that unfold or that you discover about them now that you just, that shock you. That happened to me with my mother not, not so many years ago. Um, y y there are whole parts of them that you just are mysteries to you. And you think you know them so well because you're their child. So, um, yeah, there's a lot. 
left to still say and to be discovered and not just for them, but for you. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting how in these conversations, the images that start flashing in my own mind mm. of my father, my upbringing, my family, immediate family, uh, the relationships, the way in which we operated. And I have to tell you, I don't remember, I don't know the exact square footage of the house that I grew up in, <clears throat> but think about this. You've got two parents, you have six children, four girls, two boys. The boys occupy one bedroom. My father built our bunk beds, by the way, which was, it was wonderful. My sisters occupied one bedroom. And that's, I think, how their their connection and their relationship really developed and 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 uh, really cemented, if you will. And <clears throat> this is the critical part. You had eight people in probably a fourteen hundred square foot home, three bedroom, one bathroom. Oh, and, that's the clincher. <laughs> we all that's the clincher, and we all came out alive <laughs> right we all, That's we all amazing, came out actually. alive yeah yeah and i was thinking about this especially here in california we're getting so much rain and everything is so green and i was thinking about this just the other day <clears throat> as i was passing by someplace i i can't even remember where now where between rainstorms somebody had decided to cut the grass and i could smell the cut grass and my father was a master at taking care of the lawn and keeping it green especially in the summertime and mm -hmm. and keeping it mowed almost manicured almost and teaching myself and my brother how to mow the lawn and by the way he my father had an electric lawnmower with a cord yeah I yeah. cut through quite a number of those courts, by the way, because <laughs> I wasn't watching where the cord was going. But it was like it, it would those memories would come flooding back of the dark yeah. green Bermuda grass and the smell of the cut grass and <clears throat> and even the trees that he would plant and so forth and so on. And it just reminded me of how connected he was in that way to nature to the natural world. Yeah. Um, is, is that something that you find of importance as you have grown that, and I, many of my guests talk about reconnecting with the natural world, especially if you live in an urban setting, you know, uh, let's say you lived in New York city uh, which I've been to once. Yeah. I've been to once for, for a week. We were visiting my best friend who was working at a bookstore there in Manhattan, but yeah. he lived on Long Island yeah. of all places. Ah, uh, okay. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that, your recollections. Yeah. I Well, I in fairness, I didn't write this book while I was in Manhattan. I wrote it, actually, now that you bring it up, in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is like an hour outside of New York. Mm -hmm. We had a place there during COVID. Very rural and well suburban let's say but you know very much in nature this beautiful um stone sort of cottage house on a, on a horse farm so I, I never thought about it until you just asked me that but obviously uh you know the that kind of setting and the piece of it all probably helped contribute to my being able to sit down and write a book so mm. I'm sure that that you know and um yeah memory look memory is is another major theme of this book. I, even as I was writing it, you know, I, I remembered we used to go to Cape Cod for vacations every summer. We would drive there on these long car rides. My At that time, my younger brother wasn't born yet. So it's just my older brother and myself. Mm -hmm. And this long, we had a Peugeot. Remember Peugeot's? Oh, yeah. Peugeot station. And we used to drive it to Cape Cod, which was hours and hours away. Um, my brother and I used to do Mad Libs in the back seat for hours. Wow. And then only a few years ago did my mother actually... Um, finally reveal that this is so terrible. Today she'd get, you know, carted off by Child Protective Services. But it was such a long car ride. She used to give us Benadryl, both of us, before the car ride. 
because I never really felt like it was such a long car ride. And she said, yeah, it's because we basically drugged both of you and you were sleeping half of the car. <laughs> but so I remember those those long car rides, but we used to end up in Cape Cod. It was, it's so beautiful there. I still think of it as like my childhood place. And in the book, there's a scene that I put in there. It's the last time I saw my father physically able to do anything. And he wasn't very physically able to do much back then, but I remember seeing him wading in the water up to about his waist or something like that, or his thighs, um, you know, while we were swimming around and playing, he couldn't swim. He couldn't, he, you know, his uh, spinal issue left him sort of unable to do really activities. I've never seen my father run in my entire life. I've never seen him play a sport ever. Um, so the last time I saw him physically able was in Cape Cod, standing in that water, wading there, bracing himself against those gentle waves, being able to navigate the the uneven sand and pebbles underneath. He couldn't do that now, not even, we wouldn't even try. I mean, that that's off the table. Um, so that memory kind of came flooding back and it's probably because I was sitting in Greenwich with the the land and the green trees and the sounds mm. and everything. It sort of allowed it back in. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't thought of it till you asked it. Before we wrap things up here, <clears throat> pardon me. Talk to us a little bit about this column you write. And I ask about it because of the title, the cocktail yeah. party. And my favorite word in this title is the cocktail party contrarian and yeah. there are times even as a kid growing up that's what i was i was i just and it was not because i was contrary because i believed it it was it was like i'm going to play that role today and i'm going to disagree with everything you say even though i do agree with it but it's like a game i would play yeah I, uh, yeah, it's no game for me. I, it's, it's how I'm hardwired. <laughs> it's very frustrating, I'm sure, for all the people around me. But it's sort of something I can't help. I, I instinctively have a contrarian nature. But, you know, if I agree, I agree. I'll admit it, you know. But I it's um, I find myself often, that, that title came to me because I find myself often at my New York City cocktail parties on the Upper East Side of New York, of Manhattan. Um you know, having an opposing view on a lot mm -hmm. of issues. And, yeah. and I'm always on the outside of what everybody else, is, what the consensus is. So I, I write about sort of socio-cultural, socio-political issues, um, but I'm kind of never in the in the majority, it seems. But I, again, I think I do it with a little bit of humor. Um, you know, so I, I'll, I'll write columns about um, women's groups, how I always get invited to women's groups and how the last thing I want to do is go to a woman's group just <laughs> because I'm a woman or, you know, just things like that, sort of funny things, silly things, more serious things. I write a lot about free speech issues, which are under assault in America today and um, all kinds of things that come up. But, you know, I, I try to always use my voice to sort of present another way of looking at something. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what I tried to do with everything is a little broken too. It's there are a lot of books out there about loss and and caring for elderly parents, and they can be sad and they can be informative and they can be emotional and they should be all of those things. Those are good things, but I didn't find too many that were willing to take a little bit of a laugh at some of what we all experienced. So that was yeah. my little contrarian contribution. My favorite part of what you just mentioned has to do with. Uh, that First Amendment especially, did some research on that. <clears throat> Didn't take long to find this either. And it turns out that uh, the Freedom of Speech Clause only applies to commenting on the government. Hmm. Okay? It doesn't cover... This is the one fascinating... And then you want to talk about contrarian. I'm sorry, you cannot yell fire in a crowded movie house. But I have the freedom of speech. No, 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 no. That... And then this goes back to uh, a rabbi's comment to me about, do you know the context under which this law was created? Do mm. you know the context under which the First Amendment, and it doesn't give you freedom of religion. It says that the government will not sanction a specific, I like to use the word philosophy. It doesn't say you mm -hmm. have the freedom to practice. It says the government will not mandate a particular philosophy 
And right. that's a whole different kettle of fish, you know, but uh, I, I'm not going down that road. It's just uh, when you talk about being the contrarian, uh, you start throwing up those kinds of things. I loved uh, uh, when when they were talking about the law in Leviticus, for example, in reference to <clears throat> same sex uh, relationships. Uh, that was the question that was raised to me. Do you know the context? And I said, no. He says, well, it was to uh, to, to to make sure that uh, it didn't interfere with the procreative uh, process of man. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what the population was back uh, pre uh, in, in B.C., but we're at over eight billion human beings. I don't mm -hmm. think there's any interference with the procreative process of the species of man. I don't think that uh, that we've we've made a dent because uh, we got <laughs> we got a lot of people here. Uh, Rebecca Sugar yeah. is my guest. Her book is everything. <clears throat> everything is a little broken. And um, one final comment I'd like for you to make. And especially in reference to uh, how this title came about, has to do with uh, the the uh, uh, the singer the, the who uh, my my best recollection of of the music is has to do with uh, <coughs> Cohen's uh, song Hallelujah, but in this case yeah. uh, it has to do with uh, uh, this particular uh, Leonard Cohen song where he sang uh, There is a crack, a crack in everything. Uh, that's how the light gets in. I, I, I kind of liked that phrase when I heard it. Now I haven't heard the song that that's in, but I've heard the phrase uh, about that yeah. in terms of uh, a broken heart, for example, and that's how the light gets in. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, would you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, the title just came to me really not from that song, although we should talk about that because it's so relevant. Um, the, you know, the idea, also a Jewish thought uh, in um, Kabbalah and our mysticism is that the world was created like as a shattered vessel and it's our job to take all the little pieces and put them back together and every good deed you do, right, repairs the world, this mm -hmm. idea of repairing the world. And, right. You know, that everything's broken and that's not bad. That's not, that doesn't mean that it, that's not how it was designed or meant to be and that I guess, as Leonard Cohen would say, that that there's benefits to that light gets in that way. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we become better. Um, and that things are broken. Everything is a little broken. There is no perfection, um, except maybe in the next world. But in this world, we're not going to find perfection. And, you know, your father is sick. You're, you're losing someone you love it's broken. There's no, uh, we're, we're all compelled or we're all designed to try to fix everything and, and make it whole again. Yeah. And I think, you know, to the degree that you can do that in the world in a million different ways, you should do it, but there's some things that are broken and they're going to stay broken and they might even get more broken. Uh, and life is that way. And old age is that way. Um, you know, how you deal with it, what you take from it, you know, what you learn from it, how you let the light in, I guess, in Leonard Cohen's parlance, um, is what matters, is what's most important. And maybe I'm suggesting that the combination of faith and humor um, is a good recipe for for making the most of it and getting the most out of it. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Oh, and he, I have to say, the, the man had a, a most incredible voice. I, I just would love to listen to some of the uh, songs that were uh, released on YouTube, um, yeah. uh, uh, different songs, and just uh, what a magnificent sound that came out of that, uh, uh, out of that uh, person. It was fantastic. Um, yeah. I want to thank you so much, Rebecca Sugar, for sharing with us your story. Even though this is fiction, it's based upon... Uh, some uh, real life experiences that you have had. Everything is a little broken. Is there a website we can go to to find out more about you and the work that you are doing and maybe even uh, read some back columns? Sure. There's RebeccaSugarOnline.com. I post everything that I've written. And, you know, when you're a writer, the only thing you want is for people to react to what you've written. So I'd love it if people would write to me and tell me that they love it, that they hate it, what they fought with, what they struggled with. All of it's good. I like to hear as much as I can uh, in terms of response from people who are reading my stuff. All right. I have three final questions that I ask all of my guests at the end of each of the programs that we do. 
And uh, so mm-hmm. my uh, three final questions I will ask you in just a moment. But before I do, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and then uh, 9 a.m. on Wednesdays with uh, an expanded uh, Tell Me Your Story, Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m., and uh, we're streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. Uh, we are also podcasting on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these conversations. I hope you'll subscribe and select notifications so that when a new conversation is posted, you will be able to uh, listen to that conversation. Or if it's on YouTube, watch that conversation. <clears throat> we also... Um, would love to have uh, whatever kind of financial support you could offer. Uh, we would be so gratefully appreciative. And thank you, thank you, thank you to those who have supported us in the past and those who will support us in the future. We also ask that you take time during this, the decade of perfect vision, and uh, spend some time in that quiet, peaceful, calm, still place, that uh, inner sanctum, shall we say, and listen to that still small voice. And um, we hope that you will do that during this, as I said, the decade of perfect vision. With all of that being said, we now move to uh, the final three questions for our guest. There are a lot of more questions that I would love to ask you, but uh, because of our time constraints, we're going to have to have you back to continue this conversation because I think it's an important conversation to have. And that's one of the things that I have loved, ironically, uh, about this uh, period of time we've all been through in the last three or four years uh, that has opened up the door to having the conversations that we weren't having before. Uh, but um, we'll have you back to talk about those things. But uh, first question I have for you that I ask all of my guests is who is Rebecca Sugar? Oh my goodness. Um Wow, I have to think of an answer that sounds very intelligent, thought through, and and not cheesy and silly, and it's, it's a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, I'm 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 a mother. I have two 17 year old twins, and um, I am uh, I don't know what to say about them that would be original and thoughtful to describe what that means uh, in response to your question about who I am. It's everything. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing right behind that, with all due respect to my husband, is that I'm the owner of an English bulldog named Batman, who <laughs> I love. You know, my husband, Batman, they're kind of competing for second place there. Um, no, I'm I'm uh, I'm a middle aged Jewish woman who lives on the Upper East Side, who rediscovered her love of writing later in life after 20 years in the philanthropic world. And once I started writing, um, everything started to come out. And um, I'm just, I'm a daughter and a sister, and I'm a a proud Jew and a person Mm -hmm. of faith and um, someone who loves um, my Christian friends and who gets a lot of inspiration from what I learned from them. And um, I'm grateful to be on this show. What gets you up in the morning? Oh, wow. Um, my long to-do list, first of all. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's just pure panic and anxiety gets me up in the morning. Um, yeah, an eagerness to kind of get back to it. I love writing and I love mm. working. And I love seeing what I can produce that day. Um, it matters to me. Every day is an opportunity to produce something of value, not just writing, uh, but you know that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every day is an opportunity to get up and and get something done. And that gets me up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And because you know, I I don't I don't think I have ADD, but lying around <laughs> is just torture. Who can do that? I can't do that. You and me both, and I'm not yeah. even Jewish. Although I do have one percent Eastern European Jew, according to uh, Ancestry.com. 
I'm 25% not Jewish, actually, because my mother was adopted <laughs> and her father was not Jewish. So there you go. There you go. Final yeah. question. What was your best day? Oh, wow. I, I mean, it sounds cliche, but the day that my children were born, but not in some grand spiritual amazing sense, but because being pregnant with twins is awful. It's so awful. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever gets pregnant again after having twins. And so the minute they gave me the epidural and the minute I remember I had a C-section and they pulled my son out first. And all of a sudden, for the first time in months, I took a deep breath and I thought, this is just heaven. This is the best thing ever. It's the best day. And then the minute they came out, I turned to my husband. I was drugged out of my mind. And I think I said something like, I need chocolate because I had had gestational <laughs> diabetes, being pregnant with twins, and I was desperate for sugar. So that day, I, not only could I take a deep breath, but I ate sugar again with reckless abandon. And I happened to have two beautiful, healthy children lying next to me, but really it was the chocolate. Like that was the best day. Mm. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, wonderful to to have the opportunity to talk with you and have you share, uh, again, not only your family story, but uh, the story of everything is a little broken. Rebecca Sugar is my guest, and it's RebeccaSugarOnline.com where you can find out more about her. And um, again, I really do appreciate the time you've given us. So nice to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your stories about your family, too. I really love listening to that. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to law. Jeanette, I am still listening. Dad, continue to be happy because I am. To my dear friend Smokey, I'll see you on the other side. And to my dear friend Zorro, aho, aho. <laughs>